This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello, everyone. Good morning, everyone. It, oh, I've said everyone twice already. I'm just so bad at this. I don't know why anyone lets me on the air. Stop doolittle speaking, obviously, hence the disorganisation. And you're listening to Radio Therapy, and it's 10.03 on a Sunday morning. Hey, um... What am I going to start with? Hey, before I go on, I know what, Marinara, what a great crew and what a great show. Another excellent hour and we, along with all the fish, thank you. But on to us, Radiotherapy. We've got a big show planned for you this morning, in no particular order. We've got Sam Gledhill in from the Movember Foundation and he's going to discuss men's health and chat about how you can get involved in this month's activities and what you can do to promote the message. Did you know they've become the biggest men's health charity in the world? They've raised, I gather, over $850 million in, I think it's about 10 years, he'll tell us. It's quite amazing. They're in four countries. In fact, I thought it was four, but I looked on their website this morning and I think they're now up to about 20. So I'm a little bit behind the time, but Sam is going to fill us in. So stay tuned to hear about that. Also, we... um have, we've got something quite interesting. We've got a genuine radio therapist in the studio, <laughs> meaning someone who actually administers radiotherapy to real people. So today he's a double radiotherapist, if you get what I'm on about. So we're going to call him Dr. Real McCoy in honour of his dual status. And lastly, but not leastly, of course... Rejoining us is our journalism student, Dr. Pat. Dr. Pat is going to tell us about something that we've talked a little bit about on radiotherapy before, but there's been some changes in the last week or two, and that is marijuana for medical use and the legal changes that have just occurred that is going to allow a few people to grow it, I gather. Otherwise, our regular Dr. Capri is down there on the mic, ready to go. And as you all know, Capri is a GP and medical educator and all-round person of wisdom. And she's <laughs> smiling with her look as if to say, you're an idiot, Doolittle. No, not only can you not introduce a radio show without saying everyone multiple times, you are an idiot. And that is true. So everyone else out there, sit back, relax, stay tuned for an hour of medical power. Triple R. Hey everyone, we're back. We're doing on air production as we go. That's why it's radiotherapy. That's why it's natural radio. Hey uh, Capri, down the end, say good day. Good day. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, are you, uh, I feel like we're back at uni. We've got some. You know, I know. It's like because good old what days. everyone doesn't quite realise is Dr. Real McCoy actually went to university with Capri and I. McCoy, how are you? Get near that microphone. Say good day. Good day. Hello, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to be here with my university colleagues. You are so professional. How's that? You said it's a great pleasure. You didn't get on and stutter and stumble like me. Hey, and uh, just to round it out, we've got Dr. Pat in the studio again. Dr. Pat. Hello. You're uh, ready for a bit of action. You're first up this morning talking. Yes. So, well, Why don't we, uh, I reckon jump straight into it because we do have a heap to get through today. So tell us what the heck is going on absolutely. in the world of marijuana. Well, big trending topic in uh, Australian media this week. The Australian Parliament passed new laws last Sunday permitting the use and cultivation of medical cannabis. So under the new federal scheme, patients suffering severe or chronic illness with a valid prescription can possess and use medical cannabis, provided the supply has been authorised by the Office of Drug Control. However, regulation will remain a decision for the states, which has raised a few flags for researchers and patients. New South Wales, Queensland, ACT and Victoria are supporting the move and has already introduced complementary regulations as early as late last year. And the West Australian government has changed its stance to support it now. 
You know what I love, by the way? You know, for people out there who can't see, I'm patting Dr. Pat on the shoulder because what I love about... The whole reason we get a journalism person in here is to get uh, um, a journalism take on health issues and also to spread the word about health and, you know, engage with the journalism community. And I love the way you cover everything so nicely, so quickly. (laughs) Now, um, let me hit you, though, with the first question because I I was trying to get my head around this this morning reading it, uh, you know, on on the emails and stuff. So how soon can a doctor essentially write some sort of notice saying for a patient that they can have marijuana? Have we got that so clear yet? It's on a state-by-state basis. Uh, one of the major concerns that are circulating is that it will introduce a lot of red tape. So as you would probably know, there's a broad cross-section of people who may benefit from medical cannabis. Um, but speaking exclusively of Victoria, uh, what we know is of uh, Jill Hennessy, the health minister, yep. she revealed that 2017, started next year, um, children with severe epilepsy will be able to access it to answer your question. Yeah. Okay, so as soon as next year, potentially. That's, that's pretty... That's, that's going to be quite interesting. What, what are you, they're going to start coming to GPs, um, Capri. What do you reckon? Uh, I actually thought that wasn't going to be the case. I thought there were only going to be certain specialists who could prescribe it. I could be wrong about that. Okay. And the other thing is... Are there a broad? Uh, is there a broad? Are there broad indications for what it actually will be useful for? I thought epilepsy was one of the main ones. The particular sort of epilepsy. I think it's called Dravet syndrome. Dra- it's a particular sort of childhood epilepsy. Although, can I just put the caveat out there? Because every time we talk about um, any controversial topic, but a topic like marijuana, we often get a lot of people who get quite annoyed because we do get bits and pieces wrong. Yep. It's incredibly complex. I read the legislation this morning. I read multiple websites, and I couldn't figure out the answer to that question myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite sure. I think time's going to tell. And this is what always happens when something new hits the medical world. There's 20,000 GPs out there. There's all the other health practitioners out there. And we're all struggling to get the information and figure out what's what. And we've been covering this a while. Now, the key... um, you know, the whole issue with childhood ep- epilepsy, the Dravet syndrome, is very rare. But I understand because a neurologist involved told me there's a trial going on currently yes. and there's been other trials going on around the world. But So I don't, I don't know for sure, but a couple of neurologists have told me that there is actively trials going on, but I haven't actually seen the trials. The other big conditions that it's used for tend to be related to people with... In, the commonest is people in palliative care for yes. some reason um, and uh, tends to be around either chronic pain or nausea. Um, sometimes I've, I've... And you see it experimented in all sorts of other conditions like anxiety associated associated with the terminal illness. I've seen it experimented in even. So there's all sorts of stuff. Yeah. There was a program during uh, in the last couple of weeks on Catalyst about medicinal marijuana and the, the trials you're talking about with Ingrid Sheffer. Is that the neurologist? Ingrid Sheffer is a professor of neurology at, at Melbourne. She's Alpha. one of the ones I've spoken to. Also, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I spoke to... The the other professor there, Terry O'Brien, who told me about it, but it was okay. last year, so I can't remember the exact she details. She was pretty guarded in saying, let's just wait and see. You know, there are clinical trials and yep. that she's really looking forward to the possibility that it will make a big difference, but she wasn't sort of... Um, that well, not not so much not optimistic, but she was saying, let's just wait and see. It's funny, you know, I had... Um Early on in my career when I worked in HIV, it was quite popular for people who, you know, but, um, who were in the terminal phase of HIV and had all sorts of problems related to pain and stuff. But then HIV treatments just, you know, improved out of sight. And so it stopped being such a big issue. Mm. And so I haven't had a lot to do with it. But I've, you know, recently moved, as people probably, some people are aware, into the cancer field. And I had my first patient just this week who asked about it, wanted mm. to know. Mm. And it was interesting because I'm at a new hospital and I didn't know what the ins and outs of the whole situation were. And I'm sitting there and this patient and his wife, you know, quite rightly said to me we're considering trying um, marijuana and what are the you know what are the issues Mm -hmm. and uh you know so you know quickly you know 
obviously the first thing you want to do when you're in a room with anyone is just be honest and tell the truth and be a person. So I started discussing it and whatnot, but putting in all the appropriate caveats, realizing that I'm sitting in a hospital, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's, you know, I'm not in the pub. And so I'm, just, so I'm doing all, which is unusual for me to be serious, but I was trying to be serious. And, you know, so I gave them all the honest, I gave them all the, the same sort of stuff we say on the radio, what we know. And I gave them, you know, my opinion and stuff. And, and then of course it came to writing it in the notes in this, you know, very conservative big hospital. And, um, you know, but I thought, no, I've got to write it. I've discussed it. So, you know, I wrote a paragraph just very, you know, straight out saying what I'd said. But, you know, I think it's going to challenge it. What I'm getting at is I think Were it's going to challenge Were you struck by lightning? I, I think I will be sometime <laughs> this week. Have you had the question, Dr McCoy, because you work in cancer? Uh, it is becoming increasingly common for people to access and use medicinal marijuana um, and, and mostly people in that more terminal phase of their illnesses. Mm-hmm. But, and it often takes a while for patients to even admit that they're doing that because there's reticence that, that patients think they'll get into trouble. Either. Yes, that's exactly what this patient was like. Yeah. They were a little bit, you know, they were scared if they bought... The look on their face, they started off with, look, we want to ask something about, mm, you know, are we allowed... And they were the same. They had this reticence as if, you know, I was going to pick up the phone and call, call you know, zero, 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 you know, a uh, <laughs> constable. <laughs> I've got a couple of likely people here require <laughs> arresting. Yes, yeah, sorry, um, real McCoy, go yeah, on. but that's been exactly my experience. And and people are often, they, they source, at the moment, they're sourcing the marijuana from a whole lot of different... Mm. Areas. Areas. They, yes. they don't know exactly how to prepare it to deliver it. There's no sort of consensus or clear guidelines, and I'm, you know, really not in a position to advise them. Yeah, so mm. it's mm. tricky. Is that stuff on the um, been released? To, you know, like how it's going to be delivered yeah. and all that so sort of stuff. On a state by state basis. Yeah, um, but tablets or smoking. Um, in terms of its uh, how it's manufactured, it can be again state by state. Um, so I can't reveal that information. I'm not too sure. Um, oh, do we do we have somebody? No, no, no. Um, <laughs> I think there. I um. My sense is it won't be about smoking. The whole point of trying to make it regulated is to try and regulate the dose. Now, obviously, there's limits, but they'll be making tablets. They'll be no doubt trying to break the cannabis down into its constituent parts. The THC is mostly attributed with the high aspects. There's about 400 chemicals in it. And the cannabidiols, I think that's how you pronounce it, are mostly associated with the anti-nausea effects and the anti-pain effect. And so no doubt they'll be trying to split those out and therefore it'll be either tablets or oils or stuff. Well, on the program, they showed a cream. There's a cream that you put on tw- that you rub on. Tw- oh, really? It can be topical for the epilepsy. Transdermal. Um, there's also the inhaled version. It's a f- very special device. It's not, you know, just yep. a. Uh, yeah, it's that's a, a vapor. Ro- a rolled in, yeah, yeah, that's it's, a, it's that's a vapor vaping. form, and yeah. that's more for the palliative care um, area of medicine. And then they had um, tablets as well. So, I think the idea is that they they don't actually, as you said, know the dose, mm-hmm. um, and that's what all the trials are about. But yeah, there are different different um, modes of administration. I know for sure that they've ruled out smoking. Yes. Have they? Yes, right, completely. Yeah. That still remains. Um, uh, illegal, and of course, the recreational uh, activity remains illegal. Yes, that doesn't change. Yeah, we should stress that. So you, you're only safe with it, obviously, if you've got your script or whatever and your marijuana, then you're safe. But mm-hmm. and uh, or cannabis, whatever you want to call it. Hey, um, that's fantastic, Doctor Pat. Thanks for coming in and giving us an update. No Thanks for being And on. for everyone out there, you know, I think it's one of those situations where watch this space. We're going to get mm-hmm. the information will start once they change the law. Then they start giving us all the information so we can um, better understand how it's all going to work. Three, triple. Ah. Okay, I'll take a breath. I'll relax. Dr. Capri said earlier that I'd forgotten to take my lithium. 
I heard us. You, yeah, I was listening in. I was listening to your conversation on the side. Don't forget, we've got headphones on, <laughs> even in the gap. Hey, um, now we want to talk about something a little bit more fun and a little bit more serious. In the studio with us is Sam Gledhill, or Sammy as I know him. Sam is the Men's Health Program Manager, one of them, at the Movember Foundation. Now, let me tell you a little bit of background. He's a morning to Peninsula lad, you know, that's I hail from down there these days, who manages to combine his love of numbers, statistics are his particular favourite, with clinical research and health management, which is no mean feat, as you will all know. Sam joined the Movember Foundation in 2011, basically because he was out of work, he was on the dole and he needed a job. But he claims that he's developed a passion. No, I'm... Get, to be serious, he's a passionate member, and uh, he has been working quite a, for quite a while now in the field of men's health. And uh, in his spare time, he also looks at numbers, and uh, basically anything to do with numbers is Sam's thing. Is that right, Sam? Absolutely, love what, it. Couldn't get couldn't get enough of it. What What is your numbers background? Why do you love numbers so much? I've, I've my background. So I'm a, a health professional by qualification. I'm a nuclear medicine technologist, uh, and that's how my really? role came to to work at Movember. And mm. uh, but then I also did a degree in statistics as well, just because. Uh, well, that's what. You do, isn't it? Oh man. <laughs> Man, I didn't realise that. I didn't know you had a nuclear medicine background. So we've got Dr. Radio, we've got Dr. McCoy, who's a radiotherapist. Yes. You, who's got a nuclear medicine background. I did my doctorate in um, pet imaging, nuclear oh, wow. medicine. So I, even I, I got forgotten it all. But we could dump talking about Movember if you like, and we could all just talk <laughs> yeah. about nah. Oh, hang on, I'm here. Oh, I forgot. Oh, sorry. Who, who are you down? Yeah. Hey, um, why don't you start the ball rolling by telling us a little bit about Movember? Yeah, the Movember story is a great one, and it's one that I, I love telling. It started way back in 2003, not far from uh, from here in North. Troy in a bar. Two of the founders were sitting down talking about fashion trends and uh, and they noticed, this was sort of 2003 turn of the century, uh, the moustache had, had been a powerful figure of masculinity in the 1970s and uh, most fashion things come around in cycles but the moustache never really returned to the mainstream. So uh, mm-hmm. they, you would say thankfully. <laughs> so, so they challenged themselves to bring the moustache back and put it back on the face of, uh, of men's fashion uh, and simultaneously they noticed that uh, everywhere you looked there was pink ribbons for breast cancer and there was white ribbons for domestic violence. Everyone had a ribbon, everyone had a colour, but no one was really representing men. Mm. And so they thought this was a really unique opportunity to kind of create a social movement that would allow men to grow a moustache, do something a little bit differently, start conversations, but equally then raise awareness and importantly raise funds Can to just hit focus on mental health. Um, I'm trying to think of a way of putting this. A lot of people would say men don't get represented because they... Um, they uh, the they get so much privilege anyway, they don't need representing. Yeah. Is that wrong? Have I got the wrong Look, idea there? No, I think it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting point and I think that we, we're slowly now moving away from this competitive landscape where, oh, you know, yeah. if you're not winning, you're losing by definition. Yep. So there, there needs to be an environment where everyone wins and we need to understand that men and women are fundamentally different and accept that and embrace that and, and you know, celebrate the fact that men are different and have different requirements and different needs. So, Sam, tell us about your campaign and and, it, and how successful it is. So, like I said, we started in 2003, and that year we had 30 Mobros uh, grow uh, a moustache for Movember, and then since then we've grown and grown and grown and expanded. So we've now, since 2003, cumulatively, we've raised $770 million Australian dollars in 21 countries around the world. Do you know how many people Phenomenal. have grown moustaches on account of your campaign? Cumulatively, we've had about 5 million moustaches across the course so of 30 those 13 to years. 5 million? <laughs> no, no, 5 million. 5 million. Yeah. 
moustaches. Yes, thirty yeah. to start. Thirty yes, in the yes, first year. Yes, to five million moustaches in cumulatively. Yeah, wow, yeah. that's a so lot of. That's, that's a, a lot of. Has the yeah, shaving industry um, had an argument <laughs> tried to shut you down? <laughs> well, no, they love it because everyone has to shave at the end of the month, so they may not necessarily have. Uh, so they, they, we, we're putting grooming on the on the front and centre in the people's minds. And so, I can uh, see you've got yours. Yours is actually. Did you start before November? What day? No, is no. It? This is this, this is, is a six, six day. This is a six day old moustache. I, I need to paint a picture for everyone. So it's a Merv Hughes style that goes down the chin, <laughs> and it's currently sitting at around about three millimetres. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's a sort of a sandy colour, but it, it, you know it's noticeable. I'm, it's, I'm impressed. See, if I could grow that, I'd probably be mowing. I, it's I, nice be, of you. To, it's <laughs> nice of you to call it sandy. I think they're greys that are coming through there, <laughs> causing me no end. It's got some pebbles on the beach. <laughs> uh, no, this year, though, though, this year I'm growing the trucker moustache. This year I normally oh, have just the undercover brother, and uh, so this year I don't know if you if you saw in the news uh, a couple of weeks ago, Qantas put out a, a ruling saying that their pilots yes. couldn't grow trucker moustaches and that they could only grow the pencil line under, oh, really? the, uh, under the top lip. So in a show of solidarity, all the boys in the office are growing trucker moustaches this year and we're changing its name from the trucker to the pilot uh, to show our support for the Qantas pilots. How and many moustaches? You've, you've, descri- you've um, described four. How many, how many moustaches are there? Types styles. Of must- yeah, there styles, are, there the are many different styles and, and a lot of them are very, very similar. Fundamentally, there's about eight different sort of formative styles. You've got the Charlie Chaplin, which uh, is far preferable to the other small yep. moustache that we yes. can grow. Uh, you've got the, the the wisp, which is that nice little curly, the Kirk oh, yeah. Gilly style uh, moustache. For, for the record, is there one called the porno? You know, because all those footballers, you know the footballers when they get them, they just look yeah. like porn yeah. stars. And you just want to, well, I just want to turn on my computer. I mean, you just want to shout at them to shave it off. <laughs> we call that the undercover brother. Oh, yeah, no, that's the undercover brother. <laughs> oh, dear. So, Sam, what, um, what men's health issues are supported by the Movember cause? So, the Movember Member Foundation's core business is in the, the game of men's health, but fundamentally, um, when we look at what kind of avenues we can support in terms of really giving the best benefit to men, obviously the, the obvious ones are the men's specific cancers, so prostate cancer and testicular cancer. But one of the things that we've moved into globally now across the last couple of years has been really looking into men's mental health and suicide prevention. Mm. Um, here in Australia, three out of four suicides are uh, undertaken by men, mm. um, so they're far more likely to die by suicide than women, um, and it is a real problem for men in their middle years as they approach that area of their life where work and, and family and, and, uh, and your demands of day-to-day living really remove you out of your social uh, circles. And so we're really trying to encourage men to reconnect and socialise and, and reach out to mates that they haven't seen for a while um, to try and prevent that kind of spiralling down into poor mental health and then eventually um, suicide. This is what one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit more about that in a second. We're going to just go to an ad in a sec. But, you know, one of the things that amazes me about your organisation is, you know, there's, a, there's always been, in my mind, is not having followed it as closely as I could have perhaps. My sense was it was mainly about fundraising and you forget that, you know, you've done so much about awareness and, you know, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about this, about some of the programs that you do, but it's really quite amazing the amount of awareness you guys have managed to raise about men's health. Yeah, we're, we're really proud of the movement and, and we're really proud of what um, has happened across the uh, the course of the years in terms of engaging with the community, particularly young men. I think that's yeah. that's mm. the real key demographic for us is reaching out to men when they are in their late teens, early 20s, mid-20s. Th- that's At the when point of the life great... when you can make a difference. Absolutely, you know, yeah. That's sort of us old blokes. We're past past it. Hey, we've got to uh, jump to a quick um, station break. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR. You've got Dr Capri. We've got our new double doctor, Dr Real McCoy, radiotherapist by proper radiotherapists as well as on the radio. Myself, Dr Doodle, and we're talking to Sam Gledhill from the Movember Foundation. We'll be back in a sec. Just listen to this. 
And we're in the middle of chatting to Sam Gledhill, who's from the Movember Foundation. And if you've just tuned in, he's been telling us about the success of their campaign, how it's been going about 10 years. And we're just going to talk about some of the, what they actually spend the money on. And off air, we were just, all four of us had commented that we'd all watched a show called Man Up on the ABC, a three-part documentary that aired, um, oh, it started about four weeks ago. Now I think it's fully finished, although you can watch it on iView still. And we, we all loved it. And that was, and that had, and Movember had something to do with that. Yes, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, we fun that through a partnership with uh, University of Melbourne yep. and uh, we're really proud of the, of the TV show. I think it was a really uh, a really engaging piece of content and it really kind of, I think it really struck home with a lot of uh, men and women around the country. I think it did too. So just to, you know, if people didn't watch it, just to give you a summary, it was, um, what was the guy's name? Gus? It was Gus Wallen, who's Gus, a radio yeah. DJ from Triple M in Sydney. Yeah, yeah, so he's off the grill tr- team in Sydney and um, he's, you know, a bloke's bloke and the grill team is obviously a bloke's bloke radio station. Three Triple M in Sydney, it's all male morning show, they might have the odd female voice, but the three hosts them are. And they talk footy, they talk cricket, they talk sport, they talk meat pies, pies they talk holdens, they talk kangaroos, etc. And um, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's a real... And so he got on and the gist of the show was one of his mates a number of years ago now, five years ago, committed suicide, who was just seen by everyone as being one of the happiest blokes around. Even his family had no idea he was suffering until he clearly died by suicide. And so Gus took this basic idea of, what the hell? How can this happen? How can we not know? Mm-hmm. And he went and um, spoke to various people. And the thing that was interesting about it, he took an absolute approach of the sort of guy he is. He's an ex-salesman, into radio. It wasn't an academic look. And, and I was saying, you know, in the first episode, I got a little bit annoyed. My sort of initial attitude was, oh, you know, you're coming into this field. You know, a lot of us have been in it 20, 30, 40 years telling us how to suck eggs. But by the end, I was turned around and convinced. You guys watched it too, didn't you, Capri and um, McCoy? Yeah. What did you think? What did you think, Capri, from a woman's perspective in particular? Not that we can all have it. Again, yeah, I think you have to take off your medical hat when you watch shows like this because we're not the target audience. True. So, so I thought it was really um, very powerful for, as you say, not only the men but the partners of or the family around people who might be suffering with depression and at risk of suicide. So I thought it was a great program. And, yeah. and the gist of the whole show was is that um, there's a number of key things that drive male suicide for obviously things like mental health problems, depression. Um, but one, the, one of the key things is males' interactional style, in particular their ability to share their emotions. And so Gus went on this sort of, um, ad, uh, not adventure, quest to speak to various people, you know, from various backgrounds, you know, everything from soldiers to construction workers and various men's groups like Mates for Mates and the Men's Shed, trying to figure out how we get guys to talk about their emotions the idea being it'd help. Hmm. I, I was particularly touched by his trip to his, I think it was his son's, his own son's it school. Was, and and yeah. seeing the teenage boys expressing their emotions, it was, it was really, I, I was crying. If you don't do anything else, if you not, don't watch the whole series, definitely watch episode two. Look, I'd recommend you watch the whole series, but you could watch episode two as a standalone. Although episode three is great too, where he makes an advertising campaign. But episode two, he goes to this school and it's, just to witness this program that's occurring at his son's school. And I, I, I couldn't imagine anyone watching without crying. I, I, I'm dead serious. And, I mean, look, to be fair, I, I, I basically cried. You know, if someone gives me a coffee and smiles, I cry in gratitude. <laughs> but um, but I, I think even tough blokes... You, what did you think, Sam? Oh, we, we, we're immensely proud of that. But like you say, that episode that episode two where he goes and he's talking to his son's school, I've got young sons myself, and, and I, I walked out of... We, I was lucky enough to see a, a pre-screening. I walked out of the cinema and, and I just said to um, one of my mates I work with, I said, we're, we're killing our boys. We, we're not doing them the justice that they deserve. So uh, it was a really, really powerful piece. And uh, yeah, we're, like I said, we're 
are immensely proud of it. It's, it's a really good uh, engaging tool. Mm, you should be proud of it and proud of all the money you raise. What do you do with the money? So we have, as I mentioned before, we've got our, our three main causes, prostate cancer, testicular cancer and, and men's mental health. Um, there are several ways that we invest our, our funds. The most common way is through my men's health partners. So here in Australia, we partner with people like Beyond Blue. We partner with Prostate Cancer Foundation. Um, and in our other countries, we've got men's health partners that are either cancer societies or, or mental health um, uh, organisations. Um, and then there's a small proportion of our funding, uh, and this is the one that I'm particularly di- directly involved in on a day-to-day basis, where we invest directly internally in projects that we manage ourselves. So um, as an example, uh, I manage what's called the GAP program, the Global Action Plan. And the idea behind GAP was that we would bring together prostate cancer and testicular cancer researchers from around the world on specific projects and then completely unbridle them by a, 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 um, a framework and say, what, what do you think? Here's a, here's a rough guide for what we think is an important question in, uh, in clinical research. And that's, guided, that's governed by our um, research advisory committee who are specialists in the area mm-hmm. and say, here's a program. What do you want to do? And the, and the, and the point about GAP is to really allow people the, the capacity to, to bring their own ideas and share their ideas and stop the duplication of effort that goes on across research around the world. As I'm sure you're aware, um, you know, Canadian researchers do work on Canadian men using Canadian dollars and Australian researchers do work on Australian men with Australian dollars and, and they don't necessarily talk to each other and they don't collaborate. And so the idea was to bring all these people together and really focus on sharing knowledge, sharing ideas um, and, and collectively collaborating on projects to, to fast-track outcomes for men. I love it when, you know, I think of these things a little bit structurally in my head in terms of disruptive technologies in the same way as, you know, you know say Uber's been, you know, the internet's been a disruptive technology. And, you know, when people bring, you know, that sort of stuff together, the gaps are just at every level. Like each hospital does their own programs half the time, mm. let alone sometimes people within the same department are running programs and not talking. And then you get to, you know, interstate you know, the duplication and then into country, you know, it just strikes me we could just, you know, just by the ability to do this stuff now, if we could yeah. just chop yeah. out so much waste in the system. I think a, a real classic example was a, a teleconference I was on a couple of years ago where they were talking about, uh, there was a, a researcher was talking about bringing on a, um, a postdoc student to do a particular piece of work and someone on the phone said, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother about that if I was you. We tried that two years ago and yeah. it didn't work. Because no one publishes their negative findings. This is the so, so they don't know yeah. that this is not worked before and so this is a real opportunity to, to build that collaboration. Mm. Yeah, it's that. really hard to figure out what hasn't worked because yeah. as you say negative findings rarely get st- um, published and people don't, you know, we don't keep good registers of trials that have been done. Yeah. So Sam, if you're like uh, Doolittle and Capri who are either incapable or unwilling to grow a moustache... <laughs> <laughs> how else can you get? How else can people get involved in the Movember? Yeah, well, certainly the mustache is uh, is the badge. It is the it is the the logo for our organisation. So we we want as many men as we can growing mustaches. But this year, um, for the first time, uh, we're putting out new products that people can uh, can participate in. So if you can't grow a mustache, if for the for the for the girls out there and for the men who are follicularly challenged, uh, you can That's move. Much you can, nicer, thank you. <laughs> you can make a move for Movember, so you can commit to doing uh, thirty moves in 30 days. It might be as simple as taking your dog for a walk around the park. Uh, so or some sort of exercise. Some move sort of exercise, exercise, move exercise every day. Or it might be something, you know, 
braggadocious to quote uh, Mr. Trump. You could go out and run a marathon or climb a hill or do something outrageous and do something something big uh, and and you know register for Movember, register as a move. And finally, if you don't want to, if that's all a bit too much for you, you can even host an event if you happen to be a trivia buff and you know you've got a friend down at the local pub who'll lend you a microphone for a couple of hours. Put on a trivia night and raise some funds for Movember. There's all sorts of support materials on the web. Head to Movember.com and you can register your event. They'll help you with RSVPs. They'll help you with tracking uh, ticket prices and all that sort of stuff. So uh, there's a whole bunch of support on the web to allow you to do that. Oh, sorry, Capri, go. I can see why this campaign is so successful. If if everyone involved is as passionate as you are, Sam, I can just see why it all all happens. It's a a lot of fun. We we sort of talk about having fun doing good. That's our mantra. And uh, if you can't have fun when you're doing it, you're not going to turn up and do it every day of the week. So it is really, it's a great fun environment. They're great people that I work with and and the organisation's full of really, really cool people. You know what? Because I went and visited it last week to suss it out. And, um, you know, they're opposite the MCG in, you know, this building that looks like a castle. And you go in and it, it's, for me, it was like going into the uh, ch- into the philanthropic charity equivalent of what I imagine Google's like than seeing it on TV. You know, there were funky bikes in the foyer. There was a, you know, there was barbershop chairs. There, everything was colourful. The artwork was unbelievably good. The furniture was um, all like out of op shops, I, I assume. I don't know. It was probably done by a designer. It was op shops. We had uh, right. good old Shah, who's our office manager. She was, uh, she spent weeks going from op shop to op shop trying to find the exact right oh, piece of furniture yeah, and go in the barbershop for the could, exact right meeting room chairs. Because you could just see, and there was a lot of people working in there. You know, there was like, I don't know, 100 people. There was two floors of people, um, all open plan. And, you know, the, and, uh, you know, there was clinicians. There was all sorts of stuff going on. Um, so it was really... Um, it was really incredibly impressive. So, uh, mm. you know, it was a real, you know, that's why I wanted you guys to come on. You know, it was a real eye-opener for me of how things can be done in, in you know, such a great way. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Hey, um... Bit of housekeeping. First up, we were talking about men's health issues like um, suicide and whatnot. So I, we always like to mention, if that's the case, that if anyone is distressed out there and they want some help, obviously one of the best places to call is Lifeline on one three one 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 four. That's Lifeline, or you can Google them on the uh, web. And of course, Beyond Blue also have a helpline there one three hundred double two four six. And we've um, had Sam Gledhill with us, who's going to stick around for our next um, chat as well. But the subject of our next chat is, as we were saying earlier, one of an old friend of radiotherapy, but he's never been on. It's Dr. Real McCoy, um, or McCoy for short. And McCoy is a genuine radiotherapist, as in someone who uses x-rays and all that bizzo to treat illness. So why don't you start the ball rolling, McCoy, by telling us what the heck does a radiotherapist do in real life? So, we prefer to call ourselves, for a start, radiation oncologists. Oh, that blows the whole... Guess who got the terminology wrong first up? Apologies to every radiotherapist out there, including my great aunt, who has been one for 40 years and I've still not got it right. So, radiation oncologists do little, um, make use of x-rays, basically to treat cancers. There's a few uh, benign conditions for which radiotherapy is used, but the vast majority of our work is to help people deal with different cancer problems. Oh, so just cancer or any, is, is it all cancer? 
there's a there's a very f- small number of benign conditions for Just which radiotherapy right. is occasionally used, but it's basically a cancer treatment. So what happens yeah. when someone comes in the door? Say I'm a patient and I walk in the door. You know, what goes on? Do you take? They've already been diagnosed. What's the, what's the story? Yeah, pretty much. We're seeing people clearly have already had a diagnosis of cancer. Often had other cancer treatments, surgery or chemotherapy, and radiotherapy can potentially be part of their treatment. So when someone walks in the door, they're walking in to have a conversation about how radiotherapy, radiation oncology might. Help Did you just say not? radiotherapy yeah, instead of radiation oncology? <laughs> you've got me rattled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so was I right in saying it's x-rays? It's x-rays. That's so exactly it's just like it the x-ray that someone goes in to have a chest x-ray to, you know, look inside their body or an MRI, whatever. Um, well, well, MRI MRIs is different again, actually. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> you have forgotten a lot. Yeah, I know. It's been 20 years. And so um, they come in. And so are you like using much higher dose or is they more focused? We, what's what, the story? what we're using, what's different between the, the x-rays that are produced in the radiotherapy department and the x-ray department where people are having chest x-rays is just the energy of the x-rays are much, much higher. So the, the radiotherapy treatment machines are housed usually in concrete bunkers to keep the x-rays. It sounds so cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and obviously you focus it on a tiny bit. What's the smallest, like, you know, like one millimetre, two millimetres, three millimetres? How much can you focus the x-rays? Um, so it is possible now using a technique called stereotactic radiotherapy to treat very tiny lesions. Um, so, for example, we can treat millimetre-sized lesions within the brain um, with radiotherapy these days. So if an X-ray like an MRI, not a, that's not an X-ray, but if an MRI or something else shows up a lump, um, stereotactically you can locate it in 3D like a GPS on a, a car might and you can zap that one. Is zap a technical word? Did zap is, is that what you say? Do you say, to, do you say to the clinician, okay, zap, it's time for zap. Three, two, one, everyone stand back. Stand back. Yeah. Put on your lead aprons covering your testicles or whatever. Is it, do you still do that, by the way? <laughs> I just want to know. No. No, 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 no aprons anymore. Um, so, McCoy, obviously we're going to be talking about treatment for prostate cancer in a minute, but um, I watched a, a, a video on this very good website called targetingcancer.com where you can it talks about um, radiation oncology and, it's, and what it all involves. But what, as a GP, I didn't realise that I could refer directly to a radiation oncologist for a, cancer, for a patient to have a cancer treatment. I've always gone, you know, my referral pathway is via a, a surgeon usually, and then I assume they are going to refer to you. But clearly there's another pathway, and as a GP, I can refer directly to you. Which cancers can I do that for or should I do that for, other than prostate cancer, which we're going to talk about? So, so I, I mean, you're right, Capri. The, the, the common pathway for referral is to a surgeon, generally to establish a diagnosis. diagnosis. Um, so... As radiation oncologists, as I said earlier, we're mostly seeing people who've already had a diagnosis established somehow, um, and sometimes GPs establish diagnoses, mm. find lumps, organise biopsies, and patients in that circumstance can certainly be referred directly to a, to a radiation oncologist for advice. So there's nothing to stop that direct um, pathway of referral, but it's not the commonest way that people come to see us. As radiation oncologists, the vast majority of our referrals are from other specialists, surgeons mostly, chemotherapy specialists sometimes, not very commonly from GPs. No, okay. So if we talk about prostate cancer then, treatment, um, again, you know, my patients are by proxy referred uh, for a specific treatment to a surgeon because that's been the usual route of uh, treatment 
and and I'm guilty of doing what um, I think not guilty, but I think a lot of GPs just refer to the surgeon for the diagnosis and presume that they will take on the the uh, treatment, and that will usually be in a surgeon's hands surgery because that's their their area of expertise. But my understanding now is that um, radiotherapy, uh, sorry, radiation oncologists can provide a therapy that it, that is... Everyone's rattled. Yeah, <laughs> completely thrown. That, um, that, that is just as good as a surgical approach. And I don't think a lot of patients and a lot of GPs necessarily know that. And there also is a third alternative that you can also do the, um, the surveillance type system where you don't actually treat either way you just monitor these patients and so there are three options and I think as GPs certainly I do this I just refer directly to the surgeon makes a diagnosis and then we lose the patient completely so we don't discuss any other options. So prostate cancer is the cancer of choice where there are choices to be made. Yes. And it's that's difficult because um, for many men who present who are found to have prostate cancer they could very reasonably choose between actually a whole host of potential options from active surveillance, which is just monitoring, to surgical prostatectomy, which is an operation, to external beam radiotherapy, which is what I do most often, or even to a form of radiation called brachytherapy, which is placing radioactive seeds into the prostate gland. So for many men, there are actually those four choices. And even then, within some of those, for example, within that surgical choice, there you can do the operation by what's called an open approach, a laparoscopic or keyhole approach, or by a robotic-assisted keyhole approach. So even within men who want to have surgery have a choice to make about how that surgery is done with the advice of their surgeon, obviously. So that's a difficulty for men. When people generally don't like to make choices, particularly when they don't have the background or, mm. or the confidence to make that, they like to generally be guided down a single path. So choices presents real dilemmas for men with prostate this, cancer. Couldn't you say that this is so true for so much of medicine? I mean, in the good old days when there wasn't a lot of... You know, you know paradoxically, when there's not many treatments... Um, you know, it's, it can sometimes be a lot easier. And so now there are so many treatments that can become an absolute maze and trying to help people make decisions when there's, you know, I get, I think what you're getting at, um, Capri, is that sometimes there's lots of good options and there's no one or right answer that's the best. And so people have to choose and each thing that they choose carries risks with it. Yes. You know, there might be, there's risks and benefits and a lot of people don't appreciate that. Even if you take a Panadol, for example, there's an 80% chance it'll work and, you know, get rid of your headache. Um, and then there's a one in a you know couple of million chances that something bad will go wrong or you know whatever. So, and these treatments, the numbers are way different. You know, like the surgical option and the radiotherapy option might be equal. And it's just about choosing which is more suitable to you, which side effects you want to tolerate, what treatments ease. You know, do you want a once-off operation or whatever, whatever. Exactly. But who has that discussion with the patient is my concern because as GPs, as I was saying before, um, we refer to the urologist to get a diagnosis. And then if we don't specifically take the patient back in some way to then give them the other options to send them perhaps to someone like McCoy and then perhaps to someone else to talk about the options. Where does the patient get that information? Because as a GP, I'm making the decision for them. I think this is a really interesting uh, a really interesting debate and I think uh, we've, one of the programs that we're funding uh, yep. that have just launched uh, earlier this year is the Prostate Cancer Outcomes Registry. So it's started here in Australia and it will eventually roll out globally. But the, the, the idea is that we're going to take data and, and 
collect data on every prostate cancer case that comes through initially in South Australia, Victoria and eventually nationwide in the next uh, 24 months and really understand what are the outcomes from each of these therapy types and how do we, how do we describe best, best practice and how do we understand what those... Um, best practices look like and how do we help men through that decision making process our true north program which is uh which is one of our ca- uh capstone uh, investments here in Australia and also in uh, the US and Canada and the UK is about helping men through that decision pathway and helping them through that into survivorship but really helping them through their decision making them helping them through their you know their journey through prostate cancer okay, it's all fantastic Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. And we've just prior to the breaks, we were talking about, you know, Dr. Capri was raising this general issue about how does someone decide? Because over the last 10 years in particular, so many options have come up for treating prostate cancer that it's now not so clear where a GP should send someone first up. Um, McCoy, what do you reckon? So it's still reasonable, of course, to send someone where you're worried about the risk of prostate cancer to a surgeon to establish that diagnosis or not. Once a man's been found to have prostate cancer, then, as I was saying earlier, there are a host of potential options available to him from no treatment through to a whole host of different treatments. The best way to to make sure that men are offered all of the options that are suitable for them is firstly to, to make sure that that patient's discussed in a multidisciplinary team meeting. Yep. Um, and the vast majority of people who are present now with cancers, not just prostate cancers but other cancers, should and are discussed in that multidisciplinary mm. environment. So no matter which clinician they go to first, that clinician takes it to an MDT, a multidisciplinary team, and a whole lot of different clinicians from different backgrounds sit around and talk about what the best exactly right. program is. Um, and then that information, that recommendation from the MDT is then conveyed back to the patient and that then might involve the patient going off to seeing other specialists such as radiation oncologists, Mm. medical oncologists, other surgeons if they wish to pursue different surgical options. So that MDT is the the crux of the management of all cancers, not just prostate cancer. And if the the one advice I'd offer patients who who have cancers is to ask whoever they're seeing, has my case been discussed in an MDT? That's almost the best quality assurance you can... uh... Out of interest, because I know in public, MDTs are relatively straightforward because, you know, in the public system, everyone's in the general hospitals. In private, is it isn't easy to get... That was my question. Yeah, Yeah, it's good. So there is... such a good question that I asked. Yeah, I know. You stole mine. (laughs) I mean, I've not heard... I've never um, told a patient they should ask that question. Well, I will from now on. Um, and in, in the private system, does that happen often? It certainly does. It so does. there are, there okay. are private MDTs organised all over Melbourne discussing different cancer types. And I participate in a number of prostate cancer MDTs in the area that I work in that are in the private sector. So there's no excuse, you know, the... Patients managed in the private sector should get just the same care, in fact, in many ways, high level of care than patients who are treated in the, um, or equivalent level of care to patients treated in the public sector. Yep, yep. Hey, um, mm. that's been a really good conversation and that's some really good practical advice. I, mm. I'm going to start us winding up. I'm giving us a long time to wind up so we can say any final Movember messages. I also, um, but so... Let me just say some thank yous first. Sam Gledhill from the Movember Foundation. Hey, I hope you guys have a really good month and I hope your moustache grows so big that it touches the ground. <laughs> thank you so much. It's great to be on the show and, and we're grateful for your support. Thank you. Hey, and um, Dr McCoy, after all these years, you've come into the studio, you've talked prostates. Thanks, man. How was it? Thank you for having me. As all the uh, politicians say, thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Capri, have you got a big week planned? Uh, no, not really. Nice, quiet one. <laughs> 
Hey, I just want to do a quick ad then. I want to do a quick ad. There's a a thing called the Trevor Anderson Seminar and Q&A at Peter Mac. It's uh, Peter Mac Cancer Centre. It's on Monday the 14th of November. And this one's interesting because it's sort of a cross between all the psychosocial stuff. It's called My Cancer's Being Looked After, What About the Rest of Me? And they've got three guest speakers presenting their perspectives around the other stuff other than their core cancer being treated, like all the psychosocial stuff, the social side, their family, their own personal mental health. And, And in that they've got um, people from three perspectives. Helen Garner, famous Australian author, who um, obviously has written a book called The Spare Room about caring for someone with cancer. Um, Lisa Briggs, who's experienced lung cancer, she's talking about her own personal experience. And Todd Harper, who's the CEO of Cancer Council Victoria. If you want to know all the details, jump on the um, Peter Mac website and look it up. As I say, Monday the 14th of November. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Radiotherapy this particular Sunday morning. Next up is Einstein and Gogo, our favourite science show of the week. Special thanks to our favourite friend, Kent, who's been behind the, um, pressing all the buttons this week and keeping us in some semblance of order. Hey, uh, we'll be back next week with another hour of radiotherapy. Thanks everyone for listening. Bye. I feel that if people are not too embarrassed to take off their clothes to wash the genitals with soap and water, literally with people they don't know and will never see again. Ooh, whole business still turns me off. It all sounds a little sick to me. Be a little tolerant. Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.